Well, let me invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so that hopefully makes it easy for you to find. So far, we have seen in our study of the book of Revelation that the Apostle John was more than likely the author of this book, somewhere around the end of the first century. He wrote to a group of seven churches located in Asia Minor, and it was a letter to them. And then we've seen that it's also more than a letter. It is a prophecy. It speaks of things that stretch all the way to the end of time. And a prophecy also exhorts us in the present day that God wants us to be faithful all the way to the end. Amen? Despite trials, despite persecution. So Revelation is an apocalyptic letter as well. It has a remarkable, uh, stunning hidden spiritual realities that incorporate highly symbolic language and numbers. And so Revelation as a whole is this prophetic, apocalyptic letter. It's got a whole lot going on, doesn't it? So last week we moved into the body of the letter. And we had this incredible picture that John displays of this vision of Jesus that he had. And Jesus was commissioning him just like an Old Testament prophet to write this book of Revelation, which is really the culmination of all prophecy. So many great themes and uh, storylines of of Scripture that are found in the Old Testament now come to pass and find their fruition in the book of Revelation. So we saw that Jesus, at the close of this vision, was standing in the midst of seven lampstands, seven churches. And now as we cross over into chapter 2, we see... Jesus' address to these seven churches. He's going to speak to each individual church. And today we're going to look at the first of those churches, which is the church at Ephesus. And then the following three weeks, we're going to try to look at two churches per week. That's my plan, at least. Uh, Sometimes I bite off more than I can chew, so we'll see if we actually do that or not. But before we get into the church of Ephesus, I just want to give a brief overview of the messages that Jesus gives to these seven churches. We're going to be in this for the next few weeks here. And there's a real pattern that you find when Jesus speaks to the seven churches. There's a pattern that he gives in his address. And I want you to see these different parts before we dive into Ephesus. There's four parts. The first is the address. This is where the angel of the church is addressed and where Jesus speaks of himself using imagery that we just saw from Revelation 1 where John had that vision. The second thing you'll see is affirmation. Jesus says that I know these churches. He has omniscience and so he knows these churches and he affirms them what they are doing well. Except two churches received no affirmation and that was Sardis and Laodicea. He also gives a word of admonition. He admonishes the church. He calls them to repent. And he warns them of judgment if they do. In my series on Revelation, I remember before, and I said when people are interpreting Revelation, there's the view of futurism, which sees Revelation as primarily speaking about the future. There's the view of idealism, which thinks these are timeless things that stretch on. Well, this is another view. It's called historicism. Again, it speaks of seven different church ages there. Uh, and how these churches are these uh, different ages. So, for example, Ephesus would be the first century of the church. 
If you look at the last churches, Laodicea, it's a lukewarm church. And some people would say, well, that means that is the modern day. The church is very lukewarm. And so this view has been popular uh, down through the ages. This is the way we should interpret Revelation, these seven churches. I'm not persuaded by this at all. Let me share a couple things why. When you read these specific passages to these churches, they're very clear, they're very direct, and they're very brief. And so it's hard to see how there's this double reference to covering centuries at a time. But moreover, when we think about the church, this view kind of just narrows in on the Western church. You know, the church in the United States, the church in Europe, and so forth. But the church covers the whole globe, doesn't it? And so, for example, when you, you say that the, the church today is the Laodicean church because it's lukewarm, well, that might be the case in the Western church, but it is certainly not the case around the world, is it? The church has exploded in Latin America, Africa, nations like India and China and so forth. So I don't think it works to try to fit this mold onto these seven churches Anyway, just wanted to squeeze this in at some point talking about the book of Revelation because you will hear and read that view out there, and I just don't think it holds water. So with that kind of background in, in mind, let's look at the church at Ephesus, okay? This was located in the city of Ephesus, a real huge city in the Roman Empire at this time. It only had 250,000 people, and I know for us that sounds like, well, what's so big about that? But for that time and day, that was like New York City, okay? This was a big metropolis. Here's a map. There's supposed to be a map, and imagine in your mind's eye... What it might have looked like, but Ephesus was the chief city of the Roman province of Asia. It was very significant. Um, And this city there was uh, a a devotion to the Greek goddess Artemis. The whole city was devoted to Artemis. She was the goddess of the hunt and of fertility. They had a massive temple there devoted to Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Paul comes along and mid-50s A.D., he starts a church there. He has a very fruitful ministry, does incredible miracles, and we see that um, Paul spends the longest time that he did with any church, about three years. But at the end of his time, it's interesting, in Acts 20, Paul warned the leaders of Ephesus that one day in the future, there was going to be trouble in your church because among your own people, there were going to arise folks who would lead people astray. Now, a little bit later, now in 62 AD, Paul writes a letter to Ephesus, the church there. We call it the book of Ephesians, right? Incredible letter filled with doctrine and application. A little bit later, at the end of his life, Paul writes 1 and 2 Timothy, which was to Timothy, but it was his dealings with the church of Ephesus. And that warning that Paul had given about false teachers popping up had now come to pass as the church there was dealing with doctrinal and practical struggles. Now, after Paul died, church history tells us that the apostle John went to Ephesus as well and ministered there for a season, apparently before he got exiled to Patmos. So overall, by the time we come now to the book of Revelation, we're looking at about 40 years or so since Paul started the church at Ephesus. It had gone through highs and it had gone through lows. And so now we're trying to figure out what is Jesus going to say to the church at Ephesus. So let's start with verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, 
The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus is writing to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now remember that Jesus, from that first chapter, John had this vision of Jesus and he was holding seven stars in his hand and the stars symbolize angels. So each of these churches has an angel attached to it. Now the obvious question is, what does the angel do? Well, the answer is, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Some people say that he represented, the angel represented the church in heaven. Some people say that the church protected, uh, the angel protected the church. Some people say both. I think those are very viable answers. I don't know exactly what the angel does, but I do know that heaven and earth intersect According to scripture, there's, an, there's a supernatural realm that surrounds us and interacts with us. And so somehow this angel is involved in all of this. And so he, there's an angel for each of the churches. Now, we need to think of this a little bit more clearly that in the New Testament, when they talk about a church in an area or a city, there wasn't denominations back then. And so there was just one church for an entire city right? And so this angel wasn't maybe just one specific house church it might have met. It was for the entire area or region, okay? Now, some people will want to, want to know, so does that mean that there's a church today, that this has gone on, there's an angel assigned to each church? Again, I don't know, okay? So I, I can't say for sure, but I think there is very good reason to think there is, Because angels you see in Scripture often, you see kind of hints that there's divisions and ranks within the angels. And so it makes a lot of sense to think that an angel could be assigned to a city or a location. And he's in charge of whatever he's doing there and being uh, carrying out his responsibilities for that specific area. Where it's not just, say, our church, but all the God-honoring churches in this area, there would be an angel assigned to it. Now, Jesus mentions the seven golden lampstands. Remember last week we talked about how the seven golden lampstands are the seven churches. And and so you might say, well, why do they call them lampstands? Well, again, there's a lot of Old Testament imagery in the book of Revelation. And the lampstand and the Old Testament was in the temple, right? And it symbolized the presence and the Spirit of God there. And the Old Testament priests would come along and they would tend to those lampstands to make sure they were burning brightly. Are you following what Jesus is doing here now? The church is the temple of God and he is our great high priest and he tends to the churches. He walks in their midst and he's making sure that they're reflecting the glory of God. We are the light of the world, church. And Jesus encourages us, and he also will correct us to make sure that we are shining the way he wants us to shine. We'll get to that a little bit later. So we've seen the address. Now we come to the affirmation in verses 2 and 3, where Jesus tells them, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So here's the affirmation. Jesus says, hey, you guys work hard. 
You are laboring diligently for me. They were taking their call very seriously. They were engaged in ministry to serve. And they were trying to honor the Lord. And notice that phrase there. They had patient endurance. Same thing John said in chapter 1 verse 9. That he was a partner in the patient endurance. Because we're going to have tribulation until Jesus returns. Amen. And so that's why we have to have patient endurance. This is not a sprint. This is a marathon. The Christian race or life is a marathon and you need patient endurance. You're going to face tribulation, but you have to resolve to press on. And by the way, be encouraged that Jesus notices all of your works. When you serve the Lord, there is a constant temptation to think nobody sees what I'm doing. Nobody knows the hours it takes. No one thanked me the way I should have been thanked. I do think that actually changes in your life. But it means that you do a U-turn. You change. It's reflected in your life and in your behavior. Your life will be different. So they're told to repent of their lack of God, love of God, and love toward each other. If not, Jesus will remove their lampstand. It's going to come and take it away. Now, he's not talking about Judgment Day, I don't think. He's talking about the present day, that Jesus will come and he will remove a church. He will close a church. He will shut it down. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly judged Israel because of its rebellion. And God has not changed. He will do this to the church. Now, this is not, just to be clear, this is not about losing your salvation. The Bible teaches your salvation is secure when you've genuinely trusted Christ. He's talking about the church as a whole, that if they lose their love of God, that he will come and he will shut the church down because they're not representing him to the world. Now, this is just my opinion, but I think it's flowing from this passage This is happening all over America. Churches are closing left and right. Whole denominations are experiencing massive declines. And you can point to all kinds of cultural things and economic things and this and that. But the bottom line is that if you abandon your first love as a church, Jesus will be faithful to his word and he will come and remove that church. They will close. You see it happening all over the place. So sad. Jesus also mentions that they hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about them from Scripture and church history, so I don't want to speculate. They appear in chapter 2. Again, it's apparently a heretical group that uh, was promoting sexual immorality and pagan worship, probably trying to mix that with Christian worship together. So finally we come to the assurance in verse 7. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So with each church, Jesus says the same thing about hearing what the Spirit says to the churches. If those words sound familiar, they should. Because Jesus says this when he was in his own ministry. For example, Mark 4, 9, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So Jesus is now speaking to the church through the Spirit. For those who will listen and respond 
to the Word of God. Not just that you audibly hear the Word of God, but that you hear it and respond to it. Amen? And by the way, notice that he says this is the Spirit speaking to the churches. This isn't just the church of Ephesus. This is the churches. Another reason I think this is the book of Revelation is meant for all churches, for all of us to hear this. And he promises something for those who conquer. Who are they? Who are the conquerors? Who's this rough, tough commando unit, right? The conquerors. Actually, the conquerors are just simply those who follow Jesus to the end. They don't turn back. They don't abandon Christ for sin. They don't get dissuaded because of the devil's temptations. They keep their first love. To them, Jesus says he will grant that they will eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Does that ring a bell? The tree of life? Go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 2, God put a tree of life in the Garden of Eden. And apparently if Adam and Eve had not sinned, they would have maintained access to the tree of life and could have lived forever. But when they sinned, that access was blocked off and they died. But Jesus says, when I return and I create, again, the heavens and the earth, there's going to be a tree of life. And this time, this tree will never be barred, amen? It will stay open, symbolic of the fact that eternal life will be there for God's people to enjoy forever. As we close, I want to return to God. The Ephesian church was serving God, working very hard. They maintained doctrinal purity, yet their love for God had grown cold. And this mattered a great deal. As I said, it wasn't trivial. God threatened to remove them. We need to take this threat seriously, this temptation seriously, because it can ensnare all of us. It can ensnare not just half-hearted Christians, but those who are actively serving God. You know, we can do the right things. We can believe the right things and still fall for this temptation. We must keep our first love. So I'd like to take just a few moments and help anyone who might be experiencing this for whatever reason, where your love of God has just kind of grown cold. Maybe you're just really busy and you're just always so jam-packed in your schedule that your love for God has just grown cold. Maybe you're dealing with doubts. Maybe you're dealing with frustrations with God. Maybe you serve God so hard that you forgot to love Him the way you should. Maybe you're so uh, determined to maintain doctrinal purity that you forgot whom the doctrines are talking about. So here's my counsel. Take some extended time to spend with God. Take an hour and spend some time with Him where it isn't about prayer requests, but about just being with God. When you're there, remember who He is, meditate on His attributes his power, his wisdom, 
his love, his compassion. Remember who he is. Praise him for who he is. Say it out loud. You praise a person. You love a person. Not just a set of beliefs, but a person. Remember what he did for you. Think afresh of the agonies of the cross. Think of the fact what Jesus went through. Remember how he agonized at Gethsemane Gethsemane because he realized what he was about to face for us. To think afresh of the resurrection and how that has changed everything. You know, death no longer has the final say. Jesus crushed it. Remember how he changed your life. Your life. Not just that he changed the world, but he changed your life. Did you experience some of these things when you became a Christian? Thinking back now? That you were just so thrilled to know the God of the universe. Not just to know that he existed, but to know him personally. You and God. How? That's amazing, right? And and there was just such a freshness to your prayers that you were talking with God. How amazing was that? There was just so, just so joyful. And there was a freedom, right, that you probably experienced as a, a dread of death or guilt or shame, judgment. God just kind of rolled that off of your heart and you were alive. And you were just new in Him. Life seemed new. People were different all of a sudden. It wasn't just how can I step over this guy to get to where I need to be or how they can help me get to where I need to be, but people mattered more and you wanted to serve them and you wanted to bless them. There was an eagerness to serve God, not just so that you would earn favor and he'd not be mad with you, but you were just so happy to be a child of the king and you were so happy that you just wanted others to know about him too. And it wasn't just a matter of what would fit into my schedule for a tiny sliver, but just, God, your schedule is my schedule. And the hope of heaven just seems so wonderful. And not so enamored with this world. The Bible came alive. I remember how the Bible, just, I didn't really understand the Bible. I was trying to get it. But, just, it, but then when I became a Christian, I was like, is this the same book? <laughs> it just came alive. And I was learning about God, and I couldn't wait to learn about God. And, you know, did you have that love just going to church and hearing the sermons just because you wanted to hear and learn about God? There was a great joy in your salvation. Remember what he did. You and don't let it grow old, but reclaim it. If it has, repent because it actually is a big deal. It is a big deal. Someone who is cold toward God or bored with the Bible or indifferent to the gospel, you're not in a good position. Jesus said, You have fallen from your first love, you need to repent.
So let me again encourage you to spend some extended time